Turn with me this morning to um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole um, text today. It's uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And I uh, would invite you to go ahead and look there maybe fully, read the whole thing later. Um, this is tricky business, Advent season. It's tricky business. And here's what I mean by that. It's tricky business even talking about it for this reason. On the one end of it, when it comes to Christmas, sometimes all we want to do is we just want to sing happy songs. And we just want to be happy all the time. And there's this side of it that we just lean to nothing but that. I don't want to hear about a tornado in Kentucky. On the other side of Advent, that's challenging, is this message that seems to come across as you got to be better, you got to work harder, you got to straighten yourself up. Those are extremes that we encounter this season. But there's some place between there that I hope for us to hit today. And it's called joy, believe it or not. But to do that, we need to come back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. And I need to say this to you. You ready? Brace yourself. All right? We really do need like seatbelts once in a while in the chairs in the sanctuary where you can just kind of... Strap yourself in, but brace yourself because John the Baptist is attending church again this morning. He shows up this time of year in the tradition of the church, not for decades, but for centuries. This time of year, John the Baptist shows up as a counterbalance to the season's pace and distractions. I ask myself, what is, what is it like when John the Baptist attends church? What does that feel like to us? And this is the only illustration that could come to my mind. Imagine it's 1.30 in the morning. And you're sleeping soundly, having wonderful dreams, and all of a sudden the cell phone next to your head, I, I use my cell phone as my alarm clock as well, maybe you do too, but the cell phone next to your head starts buzzing incessantly and it will not stop. And finally you check and it's one of those relatives on the other side of the country who's texting, who's decided to include you in a group text. And it's buzzing and it's buzzing, and you ask yourself this question. I'm not saying I've ever asked this question myself. I'm not necessarily saying that, but you ask this question, what are they doing? Well, you see, when we come to John the Baptist today, we want to say to John, John, what are you doing? What are you doing, John? This if there was a scripture that seems Scrooge-like, I think we may find it today. Luke 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Get the context. They're flocking to him. They want to hang out with him. They're coming to see him. And he says, I mean, I, try that this year. 
When someone comes to see you, one of your family members comes to see you as they're walking up the sidewalk to the house, step out and go, you viper! See, if you get any Christmas presents from them, you probably won't. You brood of vipers! But here's the question. When is good news that sounds like bad news really good news? When it leads to truly follow the one who will cause great joy. Because that's how the text begins. This is how it ends. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. That's the beginning and the end. It's good news when we truly end up following the one who will cause great joy for all people. The Messiah, the Lord. And that is the news we have from John the Baptist this morning. But why is this message so strong on this third Sunday of Advent, on Joy Sunday? Well, maybe you read this story this week in the devotional we've been looking at, but Olivia Metcalf tells the story of a man who was put on trial at his church to determine whether or not he should remain. In the story, it is implied that he broke with some of the legalistic ways of his church. It's really worth the read. When he was at one point being questioned, one of the elders leveled this charge against him. He loves Jesus more than he loves the church. He loves Jesus more than he loves his church. You see, in some ways, the same thing is happening with John the Baptist here. We read these words in verse 8. He goes on, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Now get this. What's going on here? Well, the people had made the, the, the priority of their faith, of their religious life, their heritage, their legacy, their position in life. They made that more than the kingdom of God. They saw themselves as privileged and better than others. And they were entitled. They thought they were entitled as the religious people. Their religious commitment was rooted in their own effort. Translate that for us. Loving our religious heritage more than Jesus Loving our opinion or our rights more than Jesus? Loving a political party or position more than Jesus? Loving the place of privilege and the blessings God gives us more than Jesus? Loving anything or anyone more than Jesus? Well, the words of judgment from John the Baptist speak to that kind of thinking when he goes on in verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Does this sound like joy to anyone? See, here's the problem. We have located joy only in the emotive center of our beings. We've equated it as happy feelings. For most, joy runs on the surface, above the surface, rooted in those things that are material or circumstantial. 
And Christmas just kind of becomes a nice religious nod to God. But God wants to go below the surface, giving us true joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength kind of joy. That's where he wants to go. More than just happy feelings. It's something deeper. That's what John the Baptist is trying to help them see. It is this joy. It is a satisfying delight in God and what God does in our lives. A delight, are you ready? A delight, brace yourself, that changes us. That actually changes us. As we heard last week, in the beginning part of this third chapter, it says that John went preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we talked about how that was a a realignment of our hearts with God's agenda. Well, that that realignment is the beginning of joy that God intends for us. It's, It's a realignment that's meant to encounter joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. So so this is not an emotional release of happiness we label joy. This is about encountering the Savior of the world who is joy and who brings the joy of a changed life. So John makes this declaration in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. And if there was a core verse of this sermon, this is it. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, our our changed lives give evidence of our delight in the coming of Jesus. We can talk about Christmas all we desire. We can can talk about um, even the second coming of Christ and all our desire. But, But what is it that gives evidence of our delight, of our joy? It's how it alters our lives, how it changes our hearts. But the people, you've got to love this crowd. The people ask the question we all ask. You say, that, that, sounds, that sounds very interesting, Pastor Jeff, but come on. You've got to bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. That sounds good, but, well, the people ask the question we want to ask. Well, then what are we supposed to do? Verse 10. What are we supposed to do with this? That's a good question. What are we supposed to do with this? It'd be worth your money trying to find a copy of Wendy Wright's book called The Vigil. It's her expressions on Advent. And she writes this. There's no such thing as generic holiness. Our church, the Church of Nazarene, is rooted in what we call the history of holiness churches. That's one of the prime reasons why I'm a member of the Church of the Nazarene. However, hear this again. There's no such thing as generic holiness, just slapping it on a sign somewhere. No such abstract reality as the Christian life. There's only a concrete life that is intersected with the power of the Word and the transformative action of Jesus and His grace. Jesus comes to live in our particularity, to change us, yes, but always within the confines of our specificity, our own stories, our own limitations, our own needs, our own desires. In other words, grace does something in the actual realities of my life. 
change from God coming to our lives is revealed in concrete realities. And this is especially true for those people who actually believe in Christmas. Do you believe in Christmas? Because you see, for those who believe in the incarnation of Christ, Christmas, we must believe that he intersects us in the specificity of life because we believe that if we don't believe this, we're just practicing some form of religious and cultural Gnosticism that's content to keep our faith compartmentalized away from real life matters. You see, we are the people who believe that transformative grace takes on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But it doesn't just take on flesh with God himself. It takes on flesh with people like me and you and us. If I, if I, if I sound a little passionate about that this morning, it's because I'm just so compelled by this truth. And that's what you hear in John's answer to this question when the people say, what are we supposed to do with this? This is how John answers them. Beginning with verse 11. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. That was a big deal. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? The tax collectors, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some of the soldiers came. These soldiers more than likely weren't Roman soldiers. More than likely, they were fellow Jews who were conscripted to serve in that capacity. What do we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Be content. Now notice what John does not do. John does not tell the tax collectors to stop being tax collectors. He doesn't tell the soldiers to give up their post. He doesn't say to the everyday people to not be everyday people. He says in concrete ways, reveal the grace of God you have encountered in your particular setting, in your unique life, in your specific everyday being. He's saying, do one thing. Do not live the way the world does. That's what he's saying. In some ways, the, this Christmas season tempts us to live in the ways of the world more than any other time. You heard me read these words during the lighting of our joy candle today. The siren song of our culture is consumption. Consume more and you will be fulfilled. Consume more and you will be happy. Consume more and you will have worth. When we allow ourselves to be entranced by this song, we will never find joy. We might be happy, but that's just going to be based on what we have or that everything's going well. We'll, we'll never find joy. There is never enough when we view the world, the possession, and people as objects. There's never enough when I look at people as an object to get what I want from them. There's never enough when I look at my possessions or my money or my titles. There's never enough. I'll always need more. So John, what he's doing, he's offering the secret to joy. A deep surrender to God in the places where no one sees and where we don't want to look. That's the beauty of Advent. We go where we don't want to look. 
It's like Christmas morning, but earlier we get to open up the gift of what we don't want to see. And Jesus meets us there. It's a surrender of our motivations and our attitudes, especially towards what we own and the power we want or have or the place we are in the world or what we want to be in the world. Now, where is it most obvious that we have prepared for and we have welcomed Jesus, that we're actually living this joy? Well, the clearest evidence that we have encountered the joy to the world is living generous lives. That's what John says. Especially in relation to what we own and what we desire and what we want. Here's the other little tricky thing about Jesus. He's always kind of messing up our lives a little bit. No matter how you cut it, no matter how you cut it, no matter how you read the Bible, Jesus and the Bible point to a preferential focus on the poor and the weak and the outcast. That, that's, that the part of the evidence of grace in me is how I treat them, especially with what I have. That may not challenge you. That challenges me today. Remember when John the Baptist was sitting in prison? Maybe you remember that part of John's story. If you remember, he, Herod got mad at him because he said, you know, you shouldn't be marrying your brother's wife. And he lost his head over it. But he's now sitting in prison. And when we read the Bible account, what I love about it is its honesty. He's second-guessing himself. He is wondering if Jesus is for real and if following him is worth it. He's on death row. And he's wondering, is this worth it? Is this Jesus' character worth it? Is Is he really the Messiah? Doubt has crept into John the Baptist. This confident prophet we see in the desert right now. In a few chapters, he's sitting in a prison. And he's probably dealing with depression and doubt and struggling. What happened? It's not supposed to be this way. Have you ever said that? It's not supposed to be this way? Well, doubt has crept in and it is poised to undermine his faith. And he asks this question. He says to his disciples, go ask Jesus this. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus doesn't answer the question the way we want him to. Come on, Jesus, cut to the chase, yes or no. Doesn't do that. This is how Jesus answers. He gives the clearest answer that validates his coming. He says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. All of those people that are mentioned, every single one of them would be considered at some level unclean by the religiously held people. Every one of them would be considered outcast. Every one of them would be considered marginalized. Every one of them wouldn't be elite enough. Every one of them wouldn't be cool enough. Every one of them wouldn't have enough. Every one of those people that he labels. He says, if you want to know I'm coming, grace is impacting the lives of the outcast and the weak and the poor and the broken and the people that no one wants around. That's what's happening. Yes, that's the evidence. And then he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What a statement that is. 
This good news of great joy that is Jesus who comes into the world. Specifically, the Bible says about how it's good news for the poor. No wonder sometimes people like me who don't live in that poverty of many different ways struggle with understanding. Sometimes it might not be good news to me because of what I have to look at in my own life and examine and give up and surrender. What is the fruit of repentance? It is a life of Christ-like love and compassion, especially to the broken. But now, here's the danger. Don't assume this is about good works we create or do in our own energy. Don't assume that. That alone would not be good news because ultimately we would come up short. We would be building a tower of Babel to ourselves. Where is the joy? Now remember the last words of this passage, verse 18, and with many other words John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is good news. What is the good news? Here it is. This is not about religious success or self-promotion. If anyone could lay claim to that, if anyone could give attention to himself, it is John. If anyone could make it about him, and, and we'd all say, of course, it's him. In fact, the people are eating out of his hand. They're flocking to him. They want to be with him. He's becoming a rock star. The Bible says the people were waiting expectantly. They were like on the edge of their seats to listen to this guy in camel hair eating weird food. If anyone could lay claim to that, it was him. They were waiting expectantly. We're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. The good news of great joy? John says, no, no, no. I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That does not look like a baby in a manger. That does not look like a cute little baby in a manger, right? Amen. But look at that's good news. Fleming Rutledge said this, if I'm told over and over to repent, to change, to orient my life to God, nothing will ever happen. I don't need to hear exhortations to repent. I need power from outside myself to make me different. So John points to the power outside of ourselves that we need, and that is Jesus. It's what he's always doing. That's the joy. It is what Jesus has done, what Jesus does, and what he will do. I read these words this morning from Fleming Rutledge. We can send Christmas cards about love and peace all we want, but the human race is utterly incapable of turning itself around. We need Jesus. And John knows it. And that's the good news. This power outside of ourselves. Now, no doubt about it, the words of John are words of repentance and judgment. Those are his theme, and there's a whole other sermon we could preach on them. 
we typically classify those as negative. We typically say, sermons like that at Christmas time, come on, where's the joy? But the truth is, this is the most positive message we could possibly have of grace. Because ultimately, this is about encountering more of Jesus in my life because Jesus gets more of my life. This is about encountering more of grace in our lives because we make way for more of grace in our lives. And we don't even do that on ourselves. He gives us the grace and the strength and the power to be able to open up our hearts and the courage to unwrap the places we really actually don't want to look into to bring His grace. Because you see, to follow King Jesus as Jen Michael says, is not simply to be saved by him. If I asked a question, how many of you have been saved? Would you be raising your hand right now? What if I asked a follow-up question, which goes like this? How many of you have been changed by Jesus? Really? Would your hand be up right now? Because to follow King Jesus is not simply to be saved by him, it's to be changed by him. But here's the good news. There is one who knows us and he comes to make us new with God's grace, baptizing our lives with a new life. And that, my friends, is the true joy. It's a deep well of joy, becoming joy to the world through us because there's joy to the world in us. It's a deep well of joy that even walks into the valley of the shadow of death that faces grief, that looks at the things that no one wants to look at. That's true holiness in the particularities of my life. And doesn't say, okay, I'm going to pull up my religious bootstraps. I'm going to lean onto my religious heritage. I'm going to slap the name Christian on my bumper sticker. I'm going to tell people, keep Christ in Christmas. Don't lose it. Christ has never left Christmas, by the way. But rather, this is the grace where Jesus actually encounters us. This one we just read about who comes with power and fire. What does fire do? Refines, it cleanses, it makes new, it purifies. The good news is that all that we are called to is possible because of what his grace does. It's possible because his grace is available. It's possible because he not only wants to, but he does meet us with his grace and his presence. He comes to us. Jesus is ready, willing, and able to change us. And so, what must we do? We need to follow John's lead. Because as we read in John chapter 3, this was the secret. You know these words, perhaps. He must become greater. I must become less. That's what John the Baptist said. Can you read those out loud with me? He must become greater. I must become less. 
And that's a good way to live life, right? John did not have the power. John didn't have the ability. He didn't have the religious chops. He didn't have the, the, the deep enough heritage, though he had an amazing religious heritage. John did not have what it took to create a new life for himself or for the people. And we do not have the power. But the good news, John knew someone who does, and so do we. In fact, we heard about him earlier in the service from Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst. Do you know that's happening right now? The Lord your God is right now in your midst. Right now, right here in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. And that is the joy that runs below the surface of life, springing up into this life of fruit. Jesus is that joy. He is to be a delight, our delight, a delight that alters our lives, a delight that changes us. And it is then, it is then, that the world will sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Why? Because we will have received our King. And it will show. Thanks be to God. So where's your heart today? Where's the joy today? Where's your delight today? His name is Jesus. Let us trust him today as we sing to him today. Would you stand, please?